Matthew chapter 3, starting to read at verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the foot of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Christmas, almost gone, start of a new year, we begin a new series in the Gospel of Matthew in our evening services, and we begin with John the Baptist. In an age before mass communication or social networking, it is amazing that one man appearing from the middle of the desert as if from nowhere could attract such huge crowds. How did they all find out? How did they know where to go? How did they know when he was going to be there? There was nothing ordinary about him. His camel's hair jerking and his diet of locusts and wild honey. But the people who went down to the river day after day didn't go down to look at some kind of freak show. There was a power in his words that cut deep into their hearts. His message wasn't very palatable as he compared his listeners to rotten trees that needed cutting down or husks of grain to be swept up and burned in unquenchable fire. But perhaps those who responded to his message knew deep down that if the day of reckoning was just around the corner, they weren't ready to have all their guilty secrets exposed to divine scrutiny on the day of judgment. There's nothing like the fear of discovery to make us realise the the gravity of the wrongdoing we think is okay, so long as nobody knows about it. Those who knew their biblical history recognised that John's dress code, that camel hair onesie with a leather belt, that was how the prophet Elijah used to dress. And hadn't God promised that he would send Elijah once more before the great and terrible day of the Lord, when all the secrets of people's hearts would be revealed, when every arrogant wrongdoer would be burned up like stubble, where those who lived upright lives would find healing with the dawn of God's just and righteous reign. <coughs> Judgment Day. 
God coming to sift his people like a farmer at harvest time. Harvesting was a violent business. The corn was cut down, savagely beaten to release the grains of wheat, tossed up into the air so that the good grain would fall back down to the ground while the worthless husks would be blown away in the wind to be swept up and burned later. And God's anointed ruler was coming to begin that sifting process, the ultimate test of quality control. Your life, has it been worthwhile? Or has it been based on the empty promises of evil? When the line is drawn that separates the wicked from the righteous, do you know on which side of that line you will be found? Good, solid grain falling to the ground like wheat, or blown away like insubstantial chaff. The one coming after John would bring a baptism of the Holy Spirit and the fire, the wind of the Holy Spirit to burn the, blow the chaff away, and a burning fire to destroy it forever. This was going to be the ultimate test. It's preaching in the style of Jonathan Edwards, who carried this whole kind of hellfire and brimstone thing to extremes in 1741, preached his notorious sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. And more of the same kind of stuff, he said. Such preaching is out of fashion these days. That may not be a bad thing. We're all much more comfortable for that. But therein, of course, lies a danger of complacency. If I don't harangue you from the pulpit, warning you of the dire consequences of living a sinful life, there is a danger that you could conceive of God as if he were some benign old gentleman in his dotage who's too kind and weak and gentle ever to get angry with anybody. Yet the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is our judge who one day will scrutinise our lives and hold us to account. That will be to the appraisal to end all appraisals. We should never fall into the trap of supposing that God isn't really bothered about the moral quality of our lives because he most certainly is. You brood of vipers! John shouted at the religious leaders of his day. Don't presume to say we'll be all right because we're children of Abraham. God could create children of Abraham out of these stones if he wanted to. None of us would use descent from Abraham as our get-out-of-jail-free card, but there are other things that could give us a false sense of security. My baptism certificate. My record of church attendance. My giving to charity. My Christian upbringing. John would sweep all those aside together with the idea that we might be safe because we're children of Abraham. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That was his challenge. Get your heart right with God and then live the kind of life that accords with someone who's washed away all the dirt and defilement of sin from their heart. That's what John's baptism is all about. 
People came, they confessed their sins and were baptised by him in the River Jordan as a sign of their repentance. Their admission of guilt was answered by the cleansing power of God's forgiveness, represented by the flowing waters of the River Jordan into which they were in all likelihood immersed. They came as guilty sinners. They left in the hope of being forgiven sinners. That was the power of John's baptism. If you accepted him as God's messenger, then baptism at his hands had potentially the divine authority to wipe your moral slate clean. Confessing your sins to John the Baptist now meant owning up before God now to what you'd done. No more guilty secrets to be exposed and condemned on Judgment Day. Really? Is that really how forgiveness works? Own up to God and he forgives whatever you've done? Is it really that simple? There's a sense in which sin is toxic to God. The divine holiness is strictly incompatible with human sinfulness. Sin has to be incinerated by the fire of God's holiness if we are to get anywhere near the presence of God. But the combined process of human repentance and divine forgiveness allows us to be released from our guilt detached from our sin and its hold in our lives. And in this case, our sin, when it is removed from us, can be destroyed, while we ourselves can be saved. That's what forgiveness does. It separates the two so that we're forgiven and the sin is dealt with. And paradoxically, it's when we acknowledge the sin and the guilt and the wrongdoing as our own that God is then able to release us from it. And it's that core idea of release that is at the heart of the language of forgiveness. When we say, this is my sin, this is my wrongdoing, I did that, but I don't want any part of it anymore. That's the first step of repentance. And when we come before God in that kind of way, God always responds with grace and forgiveness to set us free because he loves us more than he hates the things we do. But it is only by owning up to what we've done that we can be released from it. That's why people came confessing their sins to be baptised in the River Jordan. If we try and brazen it out, cover it up, find excuses or extenuating circumstances or somebody else to blame, we indicate we don't really want God's forgiveness. We're really trying to justify ourselves. And that doesn't work. If there's stuff that's wrong, the only way that we can find divine forgiveness is to be honest about it. I've mentioned it before in the sermon here, the 12-step program for recovering alcoholics. It's well known, though I suspect most of us would have as much trouble identifying these 12 steps as we would naming the 12 apostles. But most of the steps are about repentance. The first three are about God. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. That's number one to three. Number four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Number five, admitted to God, to ourselves and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Number six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Number seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. 
Number eight, made a list of all the persons we'd harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Number nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Number ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. That is deep, searching repentance. And it's about honesty. Being honest about who we are, the mess we're in, and the fact that we need help. And when we do that, God responds with grace. If you've seen Denzel Washington's film Flight, you'll know that's all about honesty and repentance. If you can get over the inherently unlikely scenario of his recovering control of the aeroplane by flying it upside down, the rest of the film explores whether he, as an alcoholic, is going to admit to the fact that he was high on alcohol and drugs at the time and face the music and the consequences of that or whether he's just going to continue to try and cover it up and pretend that nothing was ever really wrong. It's always the temptation to try and cover it up and pretend that we're okay. The only way that God can deal with it is if we are honest about the mess that we are in. It is about honesty. It's about being willing to switch the light on in that dark room of our life and admit to what is really there. Because if we admit it's there, it can be dealt with. If we deny it, or hide it, or justify it, or leave it locked away in a dark corner, we will never be rid of it. That was why John was so scathing in denouncing the religious leaders who came out to see him. He saw them hiding behind their position in society, their assurance that they were okay because they could trace their family tree all the way back up to Abraham. But God wasn't looking at their pedigree or their professional qualifications or their religious observance. God was looking at their hearts and their lives. He was looking for the honesty to say, this is who I am underneath. This is how I've lived my life. This is the person that I've become. These are the areas that don't match up with what everybody else thinks about me. God, I admit that. God, please forgive me. God, set me free. Clean me up. Clear it all out. Help me to be different. Those who were baptised by John that day came confessing their sins, admitting what was wrong. And when they were baptised by John in the River Jordan, they had the confidence that their sins were forgiven because they were washed away and carried downstream in the River Jordan to the Dead Sea. What confidence can I give you this evening? Our baptistry is shut. But I can point you to something even better. This table set with bread and wine. The body of Jesus broken for you. The blood of Jesus shed for you. It's a table that speaks of God's steadfast love for you. The limitless forgiveness available to you through his son Jesus Christ. 
the power he has to write his law on your heart by the Holy Spirit and change you from the core of your being, from the inside out. We come to God and make our confession and wonder, how can he ever forgive me? Here's your answer. God can and does forgive you. Because that's precisely why he came in the person of his son, to bear your sin, to take your guilt, to suffer the damage you've done to your own life and even to the lives of others. This is the place of restoration. This is the place of forgiveness. This is the place where our honesty about who we really are meets God's love for us as we really are. Here at the start of 2014, this is the place to put your sin at the foot of the cross and put Jesus in charge for the coming year.